Welcome to the NICU Today podcast, a podcast to give families a new point of support as they navigate the NICU journey. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcast and share this episode with anyone who might find it helpful. Today, we will speak with Darren Sudman, a longtime friend and mentor of mine who knows firsthand the experience of losing a child and creating a national nonprofit. We're going to discuss the interest many of us have to give back in some way after experiencing a traumatic and life-altering event. Before Darren and his wife, Phyllis, founded Simon's Heart, he began his career as a lawyer, lobbied on Capitol Hill, worked for a couple of public companies, taught high school social studies, and now brings all of this together to help businesses create corporate social impact strategies. So happy to have you here, Darren. Welcome. Thanks for having me on your show, Martha. Absolutely. Can tell us a little bit about your family's story? Sure. Uh, so about 18 years ago, Simon was born. He was our second child. He was seemingly healthy. Uh, he scored eight and nine on his APGARS. He was average for height and weight. He smiled for us about uh, 90 days later. And then uh, three months, he was taking a nap and he didn't wake up. And our pediatrician was wise. Uh, she told us to go get our hearts checked because babies just don't die. And as a result of that, my wife, Phyllis, was diagnosed with a heart condition and arrhythmia called long QT syndrome. And we did some research and found out that it is linked to SIDS deaths, uh, about 15% of all SIDS deaths, uh, and is also one of the conditions that can cause students, particularly student athletes, to collapse and die. So we decided to start Simon's Fund, which is now Simon's Heart. Uh, and we wanted to try to first educate parents because we just couldn't believe that that kids could die from detectable and treatable heart conditions. Uh, all the things that we check kids for, uh, it was shocking to find out that their heart, uh, arguably one of the most important organs of their body, just goes relatively unchecked until they're our age and we start complaining about things. Um, and, uh, and so we started providing free heart screenings for students and uh, doing programs to raise awareness. Incredible. And you are doing great work. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your impact with Simon's Heart? Sure. So I've uh, been around for 18 years and we've evolved, although the mission uh, is, is still very much uh, preventing sudden cardiac arrest and death in children, teens and young adults. We've provided heart screenings for about 20,000 students and helped, Incredible. Uh, I think, about 150 discover heart conditions. We uh, have been able to work with lawmakers and organizations and get a law passed in 16 states. Pennsylvania was the first to raise awareness among coaches, parents, and student athletes about the risks and warning signs of sudden cardiac arrest. We invented a new way to, uh, to teach kids CPR, and that is through our CPR jukebox. You know that well because you hosted a, an appearance of the jukebox sure did. Uh, with Leadership Philadelphia. And, uh, and it's a great way to engage kids. Uh, we, we have red kickballs that they push on, which uh, simulates uh, compressions on the chest. And, uh, and then we also have a, a playlist of over 100 songs that are about 100 to 120 beats per measure, which is the pace that you're supposed to push on someone's chest. And there are songs that the kids know. So 
um you know i know staying alive was was the og song but uh most of the kids don't know that one so this way what are you talking uh, about darren what are you talking about staying alive yeah Yeah, no one knows that song i mean come on i know i know it's hard to believe um and so uh, and then uh the other uh platform that we created is a, a crowdfunding site where youth facilities can go on and in a couple minutes set up an account and start raising small amounts of money to fund an AED device for their their youth facility we want to make sure that that they're in all places where kids learn and play did you ever imagine so many years ago when you founded Simon's Fund back then yeah. that you would have impacted as many families as you have no uh, and i wouldn't have imagined that we would impact them in the way we have mm-hmm. we uh like i said we set out to do a heart screening and i knew that if we just kept doing those we would eventually find a child who had a heart condition that he or she did not know about and that that would be a tremendous impact for that family and 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 for the community that surrounds that family because you and i both know what happens to families and communities when a child is lost mm-hmm. uh, uh so so that was really the only thing in my windshield that i was looking at and then as time goes on as i'm sure you've experienced you you just imagine different things and uh and so for instance the sudden cardiac arrest prevention act came to me one day i was listening to npr back in 2011 and i heard a story about a family in washington state whose son was playing football zachary lystat and he was hit really hard uh they pulled him out of the game they were concerned about a concussion they uh they gave him bad advice which is advice that's been given millions and millions of times across this country over the course of of history which is sit down relax maybe you know have a little gatorade and uh, and we'll get you back in when you feel better and they put him back in and he got hit again. And, uh, and now he's confined to a wheelchair. Mm. And so they set out to make sure that coaches, families uh, knew about the warning signs of, of concussions and, uh, and that students had to be tested. Uh, and so when I saw that legislation, I thought, wow, we could do a similar thing with the heart. And so you get these moments of inspiration as you go uh, and you find out that as a result of that, you uh, you impact people in different ways and bigger ways. You know, when we do our heart screenings, we screen at a school two to three hundred kids, uh, and it's a lot of work that goes into that. But when that law was passed, immediately two hundred thousand families across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania now have to read about the risks and warning signs of sudden cardiac arrest. And now that it's been passed in sixteen states, there's uh, you know like two million um, two million student athletes annually that are uh, that are reading this information. So. Uh, it's, I, I think that's the importance of, of really immersing yourself in it so that you can give yourself time and space to imagine these things and figure out more ways, better ways to create impact. So I want to take us back a little bit to after Simon was born, I, I often say the moments never leave us, right? So you, you recall all of those important moments that we shared with our children. I go back to the NICU and can remember every day in detail, almost. I remember uh, the moments we experienced after we lost both of our children, both different experiences, eight years apart. But I want to kind of take you back to that time. And do you remember how you and Phyllis navigated 
through those first few days, weeks, months after Simon had passed away? I actually don't. Uh, I think Phyllis does. And, mm-hmm. and, and just to drive the point home, Phyllis was on preterm bed rest in the hospital for 20 plus days before Simon was born. And, and so she remembers that too. Uh, she remembers me coming to see her and bringing dinner. Uh, but, but it's not, it's not because it was tragedy that I don't remember. I just, I, I don't hold on to, to stuff like that in, in any part of my life, which, uh, is a bummer because, because, you know, I don't remember vacations and, and stuff like uh. that. I'm, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to be more present, but, uh, I can tell you that it was community that, mm-hmm. that, that pulled us forward. It, because when, when we lost our child and I've heard other people say this, the, the world no longer makes sense. Like it, it, it's cliche to say that, you know, the sun's supposed to come up in the morning and go down at night. But you also always thought that that you would outlive your children, and so you begin to question everything. And it's it's a crazy mind trip, and it's part of the grieving process. Uh, but I remember the community rallying around us, and us just being so touched by generosity of our friends and mm-hmm. strangers as well. There's a there's a story that I will all, I will remember always remember this. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, when someone dies, you're supposed to sit Shiva, which mm-hmm. traditionally lasts seven days. And that's a time for the family to really sit and do nothing. Um, not supposed to have any electronics on. You're not supposed to get up to do anything. People are supposed to kind of take care of you and let you just sit there in your grief for seven days. And part of the ceremony is that every morning and night, there's a service at your house. And people come and lead it. Uh, I remember a man from our congregation who we did not know, uh, who was in his 50s or 60s, came to lead the service. Mm. He had never led a service before, but he was just so moved by our tragedy that he did that. And I'm getting, I'm actually getting emotional right now thinking about it because you can probably relate. It's those things that, I don't know, show you that life still can make sense um, when it doesn't seem like it does. And, and you mm-hmm. just figure out a way to move forward. I Well, we welcome tears on the Today is a Good Day podcast, Aaron. So we, we love to get emotional and real and raw in talking about our feelings and the different experiences that we go through. But I agree with you. I mean, I think those are the moments that stick out when not only your community comes together to support you, but also those random acts of kindness. I mean, I remember after Claire and Mary were born, I was working at the Franklin Institute at the time. And my dear friend, Denise, who also worked with me there, she a fellow Penn Stater too, Darren. I mean, I know you're Ohio State, but fellow Penn Stater. (laughs) She helped to organize meals that were delivered to us for, I, I think about three months from all the different colleagues that I had at the Franklin Institute from the ops department, programs department, sales and catering, all across of all the people that worked at the Franklin Institute. And it is something that I talk about still, Mm -hmm. almost 13 years later, about what an impact that made on our family and how meaningful it was for us. Because my one colleague will come every day, 
My mom would answer the door. She was living with us basically at the time. She'd take the meal, say thanks, Noel, and he would go home and next day he'd come back. <laughs> but it's those, it's it's that that makes such an impact, I think, when you go through, through such a traumatic experience. Yeah, for sure. Well, I did want to ask you, do you, with families that you talk to or parents that you talk to, what is something you are asked about being uh, a lost dad, about losing your son? Is there something that, that parents come to you and ask or say to you that comes to mind? So two scenarios come to mind. If we're, if we're talking about a family who's lost a child, they, they don't necessarily come with questions. They, I think, just want to be around someone who's gone down this, a similar path and appears to be okay. Uh, and uh, and there's, obviously there's, there's conversation, but, but I can't recall a specific question. Mm -hmm. uh, I can, it's more easy to recall interesting comments or questions from well-intended people uh, who are trying to make conversation and show they care. And that's a really weird human thing because on the one hand, I can't imagine anything more awkward or uncomfortable than someone approaching a parent who's lost a child, period, and trying to strike up a conversation and say something touching or heartfelt. Uh, on the other hand, you have the recipient of whatever's being said, not thinking clearly, like you're on a different planet when you lose a kid and like mm -hmm. social norms are different and engagements are different. So sometimes things that pe well-intended people say like, oh, well, at least you have another kid uh, is, is meant to, I guess, help me recognize that I'm still blessed, but maybe the timing and delivery isn't, uh, isn't the best and so I've always tried to just give those people grace and acknowledge, and acknowledge their intention instead of their impact. Mm -hmm. At least is one of the worst phrases I think yeah. that's out there in most scenarios. <laughs> that is, that is a difficult one to hear for sure. Do you have a response when families say that to you? At least you have another child or at least you've made a difference or at least you've been able to do this. Yeah, I, you know, I, I usually, early on, I probably would just say yes, because it, it was just too hard to engage. But now mm -hmm. uh, I, I say things like, yes, it, it's given me an opportunity to grieve. It's given me an opportunity to heal and to help other families so that they don't have to go on my journey. And, uh, and I, for me, that's, that's the best path, because it does acknowledge how this tragedy has shaped me and how we've been able to turn this tragedy into something good. And I think it also acknowledges their intention. Um, Cause again, I can't, I can't imagine being on the other side. Uh, I am on the other side, but, but I've lived through it. So it's, I'm, I'm, as, I'm comfortable uh, doing it, approaching people uh, because you, you kind of get this armor uh, or at least I have where it's like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Like I already lost a kid and I survived that. So I'm going to say something stupid. Um, but, uh, 
but it's just one of those strange things. Mm -hmm. I always find that it is difficult to answer how many children do you have? And our answer evolved over the years, but how do you answer that question when people ask you? And this is good advice for families that have gone through loss. It's people ask it frequently. And so figuring out how you answer that question. It's an icebreaker. And I'm convinced there is no right answer. I answer too. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm also not shy about telling my story if I feel like there's an opportunity. Uh, And I do it. And I probably still need some more therapy about all the voices in my head that are telling me what to say and what not to say. But that's for a different podcast. I do it because usually that question comes as like, how's the weather? How's the Eagles? How many kids you have? And I don't necessarily want to like drop the bomb on the conversation and take it from like one to 10 in the first 30 seconds that I meet someone. Right. For other people, it probably works really well. Right. Yeah. I I think you brought up a good point. And just a reminder, everyone, we are speaking with our friend, Darren Sudman, co-founder of Simon's Heart today on the podcast. I I will say we're, we're talking about how you answer how many kids do you have? And I think I might be, Darren, on the opposite side of that, because I've been asked a lot and I've been meeting some new people recently and they will say, well, how many children do you have? And I've gotten to a point where I answer, we have four. Two of our children have passed, or I will say keeping watch from above, and two are here with us. And it does open the door for more conversation, but it can be a bomb to drop in a, in a conversation when you just meet someone. So it is a hard, hard thing. And it's hard for our kids, too, yeah. because they going through elementary school, and uh, I know our, our kids are younger than yours, but the they talk about how many siblings do you have and and what makes you special. And Martha Rose just had it happen the other day on her third grade form. It said, what makes you special? And she says, I have two siblings who have passed away. Wow, that's beautiful. She did that. And and I'm not surprised that you you answered the question that way because you and I were just at a conference together, sitting next to each other. And you sat down and immediately started talking to the stranger on your right. Um, and I would have just sat down and kind of just looked forward. So I think it's I think it suits your personality. Better there, you, there you go, Terry. Uh, I did want to ask you, you know, we were talking about kids and navigating through siblings and how many kids do you have? You have other living children. You have, you know, you had an older child when Simon was born. How have you navigated through those conversations with them? Um, so when, when Simon died, Sally was two. And if you can remember what two-year-olds are like, they're kind of completely self-absorbed and uh, not really engaged in deep conversation. Uh at, at any time. And so our child therapist told us to tell Sally exactly what happened. And if she has questions, answer them. And if she doesn't, the conversation's over. Uh, because apparently kids at that age don't need a lot of information. And if they want it, they'll ask for it. So I remember that too, very vividly. She was upstairs uh, in her bed. We went upstairs 
And Simon had a, a blue bear, a stuffed animal. And we went in and said something effective. Sally, Simon passed away. He's no longer here, but he wants you to have this bear. And she sat there for a few seconds and said, okay, can we go downstairs and play? Mm. And we went downstairs and played. And like, in a way that's really beautiful because she helped us continue moving forward. We were not able to do what maybe we wanted to do, maybe what other people do, which is just pull down the blinds, close the doors and stay in bed. We, we had to keep moving. And I think that was one of the gifts that Sally gave us. Uh, when, uh, when Jaden came into our lives, uh, Jaden is adopted and he was six months old. When he was old enough, we told him about Simon too. And, uh, and so I think it's sometimes easier to keep the memory of your child alive in the minds of, of your other, if you do have an organization, because his, his presence is, is talked about and felt. Uh, mm -hmm. I also think if your child happens to be older, there's much more to talk about, you know, kind of taking this conversation in a different direction. One of the things that I struggle with is that I didn't really know Simon. A, a three-month-old doesn't engage much, uh, doesn't really have any quirks or qualities, uh, never tossed a football with him or went on a hike with him. Uh, he never brought home an art project. Um, and so as a dad, because I know that, that moms have that nine months of bonding, but as a dad, it it's hard for me to kind of remember him as a person because, mm -hmm. because we didn't have that human to human interaction uh, for a long period of time or um, things that normal parents and kids engage in throughout their life. And so that, that is also a thing that I think I, I don't struggle with. I've just accepted that as a reality. And so it, on the other hand, maybe it's made it easier for me to not be a, we should have been doing this kind of person because we never were doing this. So maybe it's easy. It was easier for me to let go uh, of what could have been, should have been because it never was. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, I'll say that that kind of answer that I just gave is so personal. I know that Phyllis doesn't feel that way. And I, I imagine that so many other people who have lost children don't feel that way. Well, I often say losing our children so early that we live in the world of what ifs because we didn't have the time, right? Mm -hmm. Our daughter, Mary, passed after 14 days. Her identical twin will be 13 in November. Our son, William, who had trisomy 18, was only with us about 91 minutes before he passed. So I oftentimes think of the what ifs. and. Uh, with losing them so early, we didn't have the memories. We had a box that we took home from the hospital filled with memories. And with Mary, we had photos. We had photos with William too, but that's, that's all we had. And so I sure. think about starting kindergarten, which is what would be happening 
And those milestones that just like what you were sharing, not throwing the football, not not doing those typical activities that you can do or just being with your child and spending yeah. time with them. So I, I do often refer to those as the, the what ifs, living in the what ifs. So Martha, how many of the moments and milestones with Claire are disrupted by uh, Mary should have been here too? Or what would she have been doing at this exact moment? Uh, I would say, look, Darren, you're going to make me tear up on the podcast okay. here today. But I I would say there are moments that hit, I think Claire feels it the most being an identical twin with Mary. And she thinks about it frequently. The moments that she wishes her sister were there. I, I don't try to live in that she should be here, but I'll have fleeting moments of, I would say seeing them both together at birthdays. I'll have a mm -hmm. fleeting moment of kind of what it would be like. But as we talk about to the girls, that is not our family's journey. This is our journey. This is the path we've been given to take. And we've been able to create today is a good day. This is the path you've been given, Darren. You've done incredible things with Simon's heart. So we continue to take it one day at a time, right? Yep, for sure. This might be the first time I've cried on the Today's a Good Day podcast. I just want to yes. share that with you. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting into it, Darren. We're getting into it. Um, so I have two more questions for you. One okay. is, what advice do you have for other families going through this experience? Through the, the losing through a child experience mm -hmm. or through loss? The, I give this advice because someone gave it to me. A, co a colleague gave it to me and it was the most helpful thing. And he told me right after Simon died that you're going to feel a force pulling you down. Don't resist it. Um, go down because you won't be down forever. And if you let it consume you and you work through it, you'll come back up. And, Love that. and that, that really helped me. Um, because I think, I think what trips up a lot of people is that they think they have to be a certain way, uh, as they manage through any situation, a, a layoff or a, a divorce uh, or the death of a child. But that advice was great because it was like, you know what, who cares what anybody else thinks you're going through something just unthinkable just go through it and when you're ready come back to the world and and so i don't remember how long that took me but just that vision of mm -hmm. of doing that was helpful and the other thing that really helped me is i spent a lot of time in my own head just trying to figure out why and i remember we used to get out of town on the anniversary of Simon's birthday, but particularly his death, because he passed away in our home and we didn't want to be here that day. And so one of the trips we took was to um, a beach. And I remember sitting on the beach, thinking about the what ifs and why me. And, and something just clicked that I, I grew up always hearing um, my aunt 
a, every response to a question of like, how you doing would be something like, thank God I'm healthy. You know, I, this day's like, this day's a good day, you know, the name of your organization. And, you know, as a young kid, I was like, that's such a stupid answer. Like, what about all the other stuff you could be doing and buying? Like, you know, um, but, but I was sitting on that beach and I thought like, what if it really is about minute to minute, day to day? There's so much tragedy and death in the world. There are so many families all across the world that lose their kids to violence and war. Um, and if I keep them in my thoughts instead of the people in my world, in my community that seem to have the perfect lives, then, then maybe I can adjust my thinking and say, I was blessed to have 93 days because so many people only have 45 or 91 minutes or, or no time. And, and that happened about a year and a half in. And I think that really helped me too. Uh, but I, I know that that's a really tough place for a lot of people to get to. Mm -hmm. Well, I think some of the advice that you just gave too also relates to the NICU because there is such a grieving process and loss that so many feel going through the NICU experience as well, even taking a child home at the end of a NICU journey. But that loss and that grief can really pull you down at the beginning because there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel if you are in for an extended stay, if you have extremely premature babies who are in or medically complex children who are in for a long time. And so I think your advice that you gave of, of letting yourself kind of go to that spot, don't, don't live there, but let yourself go there and then pull yourself back out is so important. And one day at a time, one minute. Yeah. Absolutely. So you stepped down as executive director for Simon's Heart several years ago. You've put your blood, sweat, and tears into the organization from the very beginning. How does it feel stepping down? How are you still involved in the organization? And where can people learn more about your important mission with Simon's Heart? It, it feels really good. It didn't always feel good, um, but it feels really good. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you think this, Martha, and every grieving parent uh, who has ever started a nonprofit, you put so much into it, you just, you can't imagine anyone else being able to do the work because you're so consumed. Uh, but I, I realized after eight years of full-time, followed, followed up on the seven years of nights and weekends, that I needed to give myself a little space. I needed to be a little bit, you know, more present for Sally and Jaden, uh, because I didn't want them to just know me as that, you know, dad who runs Simon's Heart. I wanted them to know me as dad who has just a normal job. And I, we, luckily we found uh, Jen, who's been exceptional. And it's a really timely question that you asked me because yesterday we were in Harrisburg uh, lobbying on a bill to get emergency action plans and AEDs into schools. And I showed up because I'm really comfortable there and, and my experience with the Sudden Cardiac Arrest Prevention Act, but Jen mobilized our, our volunteers and our families and, and the staff. And I, I was just like so proud to watch. Uh, and, uh, and there's a heart screening this weekend in Norristown. Um, I'm going to the Ohio State game in South Carolina. Oh, oh, so, oh, oh. um, no comment. So, you know, <laughs> I, 
And, and yesterday I left Harrisburg early to watch Jaden's soccer game and he scored a goal. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's great because I'm getting a little bit of like the Sudman family back. Uh, but it's also great because at, at some point I was going to have to stop doing it, whether, whether I became infirm or died or like whatever. And, and I didn't know this before it happened, but I realized after the fact it's as much fun and as, as fulfilling to see what you built thrive and grow uh, without you. Because now if something did happen to me, I would know that Simon's heart would continue to be around. Whereas before mm-hmm. I didn't know that I didn't know if it was sustainable. Um, it's different, not a lot different, but it's different, but um, it, it's doing great. So I, I couldn't be happier with That's the wonderful. decision that I made. And where do people find out more about Simon's Heart? Uh, Simonsheart.org. Wonderful. And uh, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and I think we're on TikTok now. Great. Yeah. Well, Darren, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast today. Thanks for sharing so much of your personal story with us. Thanks for sharing Simon with us. Really appreciate your friendship and thanks for being here. Always love spending time with you. Thank you for tuning in to the NICU Today podcast brought to you by Today is a Good Day. Learn more at todayisagoodday.org.